0: Can you believe it? In the old master market, there is no standardized condition report. So if Mr. X creates a condition reports about a Raphael, he can say the work is in splendid condition. What the hell is splendid? <laughs> <laughs> then you can have Mr. X in Paris who can say about the same work, the artwork is in stable condition. What the heck is a stable condition? I would be worried to even hang it on my wall
1: money is changing so where do we go from here through high-profile interviews and thought provoking analysis join coindesk's michael casey and sheila warren of the world economic forum as they explore the connections between finance human culture and our increasingly digital lives this episode is brought to you by the coindesk podcast network just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice.
2: And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined, I'm Michael Casey. Today we're bringing to you the first episode in a multi-part series about NFTs. Now, if you don't know what NFTs are. Let me just say that they are currently the hottest thing, perhaps outside the booming Bitcoin market, in the crypto universe. Even buzzier than DeFi, their proponents see huge potential to disrupt the world of art, sports, and entertainment, and to almost reframe how human beings approach the business of collecting and appreciating and valuing creativity. NFT stands for non-fungible token, a blockchain-based token that is unique, one of a kind. Its value, like, say, that of a painting is fully contained in this one piece of digital property. This is in contrast to Bitcoin, Ether, and other payment and commodity tokens which like dollars or oil are designed to be fungible in that it shouldn't matter which actual coin you control all are perfectly substitutable for any other Bitcoin or dollar. Like Bitcoin, NFTs build on the powerful concept of provable digital scarcity and like Bitcoin Their power lies in being able to apply the programmability of software to this concept. All of a sudden, you can do things like divvy up separate shares in a piece of art, or you can attach powerful smart contracts to the token so that if you sell it in a secondary market, a pre-agreed portion of that second sale goes to the artist. NFTs have been around for a while. They first made waves when Dapper Labs launched the CryptoKitties craze based on the ERC721 token. And it attracted so much trading that it essentially froze the Ethereum blockchain. But now, helped by various improvements to how NFTs function and amid a surge of interest in mainstream products, such as the tokens associated with the NBA Top Shot game, now ranking with $50 million in sales, NFTs are a big deal now, with big celebrities like Mark Cuban, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Lindsay Lohan promoting the technology and money pouring into the space many are talking about a revolution. Why is it so revolutionary? Well, that's what we're gonna explore in this series. And to start with, we're gonna break it down by talking about the underlying idea of valuing unique collectible property such as art and how it can be applied to this digital realm. For that, we're joined by Nana Decking, the CEO and founder of Artery, a blockchain platform for the art industry. Nana was previously vice chairman of Sotheby's, the 277 year old auction house, where he was also worldwide head of private sales. It's hard to imagine a better perch from which to explore the core idea of value and collecting that we will dive into today. But first, let's do as we always do and say hello to my co host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So just before we started, Sheila, you alerted me to something that I was not aware of. That is that you yourself are a CryptoKitty. Or is that the right way to put it? You have a CryptoKitty? Uh, you know, there it, is- there is,
3: the debate rages. There it is. Uh, I, I certainly have a digital representation of myself in CryptoKitty form, I think is the accurate way to say it. Uh, but I like to say I am indeed a CryptoKitty. Oh, and here I am. Sheila Perrin was a CryptoKitty who first appeared on the scene, I believe, in October of 2018 and has spawned, you know, some generations of her crypto kitties. So, yeah, very flattering, obviously. And at that time, we were in kind of the height of CryptoKitties craze. <laughs> I like to say that's when I knew I, I kind of maybe making some waves here.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you were and you still are. Now you're making even bigger waves, of course. But, <laughs> but the thing is, there were various versions of this, which, of course, is the whole point, right? So maybe right. for people who aren't familiar with what CryptoKitties are and what, the, what we mean by that, these versions, can you explain to people what the whole idea of- behind a crypto kitty was?
3: Yeah. Well, so CryptoKitties really were, they were kind of a joke, right? Cause the idea here was that cats were of course, internet crazed. Could we sort of prove the model before they were even called NFTs for that was even a concept that you could create collectibles and these collectibles would actually have value. And as Michael, as you noted, the idea here is that these are non-fungible. So every CryptoKitty is unique. It has its own unique imprint. The idea here is there were different crypto kitties that got together and you could choose as someone who is kind of a, think of it as a game. So if you were a player in the crypto kitties ecosystem, you could actually breed these different crypto kitties with each other. And that would find kind of generations of different kitties that had characteristics of the parent kitties. Now, if this all sounds hilarious and comical, it was, and then surprise, it really blew up. So this wound up not only freezing the Ethereum blockchain, it was just so popular as an activity, mining these kitties. The idea of creating your own family of crypto kitties and owning them and having proof of that ownership was surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, extremely powerful. So the market at some point on these coveted crypto kitties, of which I confess I was not necessarily one of oh. the most coveted crypto kitties, were, the evaluation on these things was crazy. It kind of proved, I think, the point that you could use this model and you could then attach it to people, to other things, like to artists that were already working in this space. And kind of the direction that we're going to move today is talking about digital art. Art is in the eye of the beholder to some extent. So is Sheila Perrin a valuable work of art? I certainly think so. Oh, yes. <laughs> but you know, your mileage may vary.
2: We have a guest who can weigh in on the value, I think, probably here. No one could possibly give us a better sense of whether or not it's valuable. But I just think before we bring, Nana in. The thing that was so sort of striking for me at that moment when they emerged was to say, wow, we actually did it. The notion of digital scarcity, which is underlying all cryptocurrencies and all this space really, now being applied to a unique digital form really just opens so many different ideas. And that's really what we're going to explore. But that's what I think was so big about CryptoKitties. It, it, It proved this idea. And the mania for it, and since then we've had, you know, the idea of rare pepes, for example, so that you can collect the digital form and you can own that and, and there's all sorts of properties that can be associated with that. So yeah, it was a, an important moment, but I think we're now moving into a very different phase where it is truly starting to become something that is, is reaching the mainstream.
3: I think it's not just for fun anymore, right? That started off as being for fun. Like to your point, it proved an extraordinarily valuable proposition. And so when you think about the combination of that proposition of digital scarcity with existing forms of digital tokenization, and you think about what that can unlock, well, that's where you get the true power behind this entire movement that underlies NFTs.
2: Absolutely. And I think there's so many ways in which this can go. So why don't we bring Nana in? Let's hear his perspective. Uh, Nana, you really straddle these worlds in an interesting way. As we mentioned in the outset, uh, you, know, you were at Sotheby's for some time, 277-year-old
0: auction house. I haven't been there from the start, let that be clear.
2: <laughs> You're not actually a 300-year-old human being. Just to be clear, folks, he, he's not the founder of Sotheby's. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly, you know, the institution itself you know, steeped in this idea of art being something associated with the physical world. And then you also spent some time at the Wildenstein Gallery. I think you you mentioned the oldest gallery in the world. So I want to take that as a starting point for this conversation. What I want to do here is figure out where does value come from in the art world? In the commodity world, and also therefore in the currency world, Bitcoin being the example we often refer to, there is a reference price. This thing is being traded everywhere, and it's the same thing that I have, and therefore I know what that price is. But... When it comes to something unique, there's only one of them, how do people establish value? And, and what is it about old art, art that has been around for a long time, and how that's valued versus contemporary art? And I think that's where you see where I'm going with this in terms of the, your old job and your new job. So if you can weave all that together, it would be great.
0: I love to hear Sheila talk about the crypto. Well, you don't have a CryptoPunk, you have a crypto kitten, right? I, I happen to be the owner of a CryptoPunk. But... <laughs> The beautiful thing about these artworks is, because they're artworks, is they follow exactly the same mechanisms that make you define the price of a traditional artwork. You know, the fact that they are scarce, you can actually prove that you have the unique kitten or the punk, whatever you own. So the uniqueness of the piece is completely in sync with how you would value a traditional artwork. So for me being now the founder and CEO of a tech company, Using blockchain technology didn't make me change my mind of what I've learned in the art world. That's why I actually believe if you want to be credible in the art world with a technical product, it helps that you come from the art world. And what I've learned there is that credible information helps a lot uniqueness and credibility, uniqueness of the work and credibility of the information about the artwork. So when I worked at Wildenstein, you have to imagine that's one of the largest galleries in the world. It used to be one of the largest galleries in the world. They were in Paris, they were in in London, and I was at the headquarters in New York in a palatial building where I had to sell out of a beautiful room with 18th century wooden panelings that were dismantled from a city palace in in Paris. That's where I had to sell an artwork one-on-one with someone who could afford a Monet or a 10, $20 million painting. So that put me in the position that I had to be the translator of all the information that was known about that artwork. So what would I say? I would say there's an impeccable provenance. I would immediately try to steer the whole subject away from me being a scholar and a Monet uh, scholar uh, to other entities that confirm my opinion, right? So what is a better entity that the work has been on loan for a major Monet exhibition at the Louvre, or well, not the Louvre, the Musée d'Orsay, uh, or at the Metropolitan Museum. And this scholar wrote about it. And by the way, here are all the catalogues where the artwork is mentioned, which the librarian could bring down and laid out on the table. So what are you doing? You're proving that there are impartial people who have formed an opinion about an artwork, which is not always... Easy for people to believe. And honestly, spoken, not even easy to understand. Which color do you trust? So it it often boils down to, I I trust Nana for some reason. Uh, One of my biggest clients trusted me because I was Dutch and he happened to like Dutch people, which I think is the worst reason to buy a Monet. But it
2: worked. <laughs> my, uh, the groomsman was a Dutchman, so I trusted him with my marriage. So you know,
0: <laughs> I, I, I've got fairly high opinions of Dutch people. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you see what I'm targeting at, right? So if you look at why is contemporary art so valuable, why the last 10 years have the contemporary sales at Sotheby's and Christie's outperformed mm-hmm. old master sales? It's because the new buyers don't necessarily want to go through the whole hassle which scholar do I trust? And who in the art market do I trust? They basically don't want to trust anyone. They just want to know. Well, Anselm Kiefer is still alive. So you can just call his office and say, hey, I, I want to buy this artwork. And you can get confirmation from the source. Having said that, I'm a firm believer that technical solutions can actually help also old master paintings. You know, I'm a firm believer in blockchain technology, not because it has any miraculous uh, capacity. It doesn't do anything by itself. But what you could use it for is to actually scoop up the important, relevant information, credible information, make sure that that information is associated with the artwork and cannot be removed anymore. And it gets a timestamp. So now all of a sudden, you know, This scholar at that time in the history of this artwork made this statement about the artwork. By the way, if you talk about permission-based access to information, you can also ask the insurance company to attach the information or the owner can do it. So now all of a sudden, we will know in 50 years that the artwork was actually insured in 2021 for $50 million, which all adds to the reassurance of that artwork, which would have put me as a person selling the highest national of artworks from the Wildenstein Gallery in a much easier position to talk to my clients. So I believe in technology, very much so. I don't necessarily believe in people who say, you know, blockchain technology will make information more credible. It doesn't. If you look at blockchain technology at Whole Foods, you can actually see where the shrimp was caught and when it was caught that you will eat for dinner. And that's all blockchain technology. And what makes it important? That credible people like the captain of the ship mm-hmm. sign off on all that information. So I'm a firm believer in cryptographic signatures, which we incorporate in our business. But if you talk about valuation, it's, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about it because, of course, I knew this talk was coming up. We all live in neighborhoods and we all live in different neighborhoods, but many neighborhoods are actually desirable because of the low price range or because of the high price range or because of the location. I happen to live in Brooklyn Heights, which is a desirable neighborhood in New York. In my block, a house sells for a much bigger price than ever happened before. It's fair to say that every house in my street or in my area with a similar square footage and a similar location will actually go up in price. Guess what? With art, that's not the case, although a lot of people want you to believe that, mimosas, index, etc. The big difference is in whatever neighborhood you live, every house is sellable. And maybe in a good year or in, let's say, when the economy goes really well, maybe 10% more. When the whole market collapses, it's only 10% less. Let's not forget it you won't lose your whole asset. It's very unlikely unless you've bought really very stupid right next to the highway. With art, the interesting thing is 80% of the art is not being sold. So you cannot really compare. Why is a lot of art not sold? Because the owners know that it's actually not valuable. Because if you go to a gallery and you buy an artwork, the chances that it will appreciate are not that big, let's face it. You know, If you buy $20,000, $40,000 artwork, which I think is a hell of a lot of money, the chances are not that big. When you are a player at the highest decimal of the market, you just make sure that you become a benefactor of the Museum of Modern Art, you get all the inside information, and you can actually help starting this trail of credibility by making Mm -hmm. sure, well, I know the chief curator of MoMA and I know the artwork will actually be in one of the biggest exhibitions ever in, in a year time.
3: There's so many stories of artists who are previously obscure that some connected person picked up and then basically created the buzz around that artist and that provenance being critical and that has carried forward. They originated essentially that trail of authenticity that you're talking about through sponsoring an exhibition or whatever it might be, or just including that artist in their collection, which upon when they passed or whatever it might be, you know, was open to the world. And suddenly people realized, oh, so-and-so, you know, famous collector who was very clear on provenance and very reliable had, you know, 40 works by X artists. And suddenly you see a skyrocketing in interest in and therefore value of that artist. So, So much of this, as you say, has been so relational and so reputation based. And what is really interesting about this movement towards not only digital art, but also to tracking provenance on something like a blockchain is that you can provide more access to people that don't have you know, the ability to create some of the relationships that you're talking about.
0: Totally, totally. Or, or those lucky collectors with their own art historical staff, which most people yeah. don't. So I'm a firm believer in the technology. And what I really find interesting is Two years ago, a haystack of Monet was sold to a guy called Hosso Plattner. I can say it because it was public knowledge. But Hosso Plattner was also a big client of mine when I was working at Wildenstein. And he built up a very important collection of French Impressionism. That haystack fetched a world record. There was never a more expensive Monet sold. So it it fetched something like $130 million. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you look at people who try to make sure that people start to invest in a fractionalized way in, in art, uh, they're offering a Monet. And all of a sudden, also that Monet miraculously uh, goes up in price by 25%, which you can say in my neighborhood example, but you can't say it about Monet. I mean, I've been in that business and I know certain Monets are just very hard to sell. And they don't become easier to sell if a completely different work by the same artist sells for a high price. So I'm always explaining to people, be very cautious in that market, know what you're doing. But I actually believe, as as Sheila also basically confirmed, is, yes, it will help to add technological possibilities and options we have these days to make sure that you can actually see who said what about an artwork and when. And it doesn't always have to be public. Of course, I'm a dreamer. I'm Dutch. So it would be amazing if every credible artwork would actually be on our registry as a public artwork. But I also realized that many people don't want their artwork to be public. But then at least you can give permission-based access to a condition report.
3: You know, I think many people have this moment when they switch from buying prints of like old masters or whatever to their first piece of art. You know, I certainly remember mine vividly. It was a Sarah Norris. He's a local artist that paints these blue dogs, and some friends of mine were obsessed with this artist, and so I picked up an actual piece for their wedding as a gift. Actually, a little known fact about me is I spent a summer as an art lawyer. So I've mentioned on the show that I w- was a tax lawyer for a couple of years. One of the reasons for that is not just because you know I'll say it again, my piece of propaganda here is the tax system underlies like every transaction in the United States of America. Pay attention to it if you aren't already. But my path to that was because I spent a summer working for Uh, Ralph Lerner, an art lawyer in New York, phenomenally brilliant guy. And his advice was, you know, it's all tax. But during that time, I worked with the Calder estate very closely. And so a lot of what was interesting was thinking about the access or the permission that the estate might give to copies or prints or other, in that case, sculpture, you know, what it might look like. And is there a stream there that was interesting, whether it was for educational purposes or to provide more access and awareness of the artist? And this is true of a variety of artists and the decision around. The merchandising, almost, if you will, of a particular piece of art is a really powerful way that many new artists have moved their awareness of their work into the public domain, like the understanding of the public, right? Whether that's licensing for a commercial or whatever it might be. And this is, of course, very true in music, as we know. Many hitherto mm-hmm. unknown artists really do blow up because, you know, well, in, back in the day, like the iPhone was using their song as the kind of like the main song in an ad. So I'm curious, you know, how you see not just fractional ownership, but also some of these copies then being identified, right, as copies very clearly, because of course, leaving aside the whole issue of like old masters and their studios and those who were kind of learning by creating copies of old masters, but right, leaving that kind of aside, I do think digitally, there's a lot more room for the creation of copies of art. And it becomes interesting to think about how you track provenance in such a context.
0: Well, interestingly enough, it it comes back, and I'm I'm a little bit old-fashioned maybe, in let's look what is common practice in the art market. Mm. If a copy is, for example, uh, a series or prints, you mentioned prints, so multiples. I think for multiples, the technology of blockchain and have a cryptographic signature on the record that this is the second out of a series of 15, adds a whole layer of new security because we all know with multiples, that it's sometimes a little iffy how large the the actual amount of artworks, you know, how many prints have actually been printed, how many photographs have actually been printed.
3: Exactly.
0: So if you talk about NFTs, it becomes really important that you know, how many there are, and that you're actually the owner of a unique one from a series of 2,000 or even a million. Mm-hmm. I actually like this whole idea of NFTs because I think there's a huge use case for museums to raise money. I think a lot of people would love to own. Why not be the owner of, well, let's say, the girl with the pearl earring in the Marit's house in the Hague? You know, why not have 20,000 NFTs of of that artwork out where people pay for? And you can maybe create a whole group of people who own it. You can maybe add a whole layer of 3D photography or maybe even x-rays of the artwork that you can see all the layers underneath. You can create all kinds of layers. But the bottom line is that you want to make sure that you're not being ripped off, that you actually (laughs) own one of the original, not original artworks, which is quite interesting. What I look at a lot is the moment people are looking to create new financial products on top of an artwork, whether it's an NFT or it's fractionalized ownership, tokenization. the bottom line should be, it has to be an artwork that's tradable by conventional dealers. Which worries me currently is because when tech people or financial people who don't necessarily understand art start mm-hmm. to offer artwork in a fractionalized way, as someone who actually know understands the market, you see They were basically taken on the right by a dealer who tries to offload an artwork which he or she couldn't sell. And I would never recommend anyone to invest in an artwork that a traditional dealer can't sell because Mm -hmm. I don't believe Mm -hmm. in miracles. I'm not saying they're all doing this, right? There is. I'm a little bit skeptical about the market when the specialists are not involved anymore. I want to actually pick up on that, Nana,
2: because there was a story we had in Coindesk from the other very old auction house, Christie's. And Christie's are now basically going to be auctioning work by this digital artist, Beeple. And Beeple, otherwise known as Mike Winkleman, has made basically $3.5 million out of uh, NFT auctions in the, in the last year. There's this sense that, you know, we talked about the provenance and all this history. He's almost immediately establishing that status by virtue of a kind of a mania of participation in it kind of market itself, I think, defining the fact that he's worth something because his digital art is making money. And now, of course, Christie's coming in and giving some sort of endorsement to that, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Endorsement is the kiss of death, right? You never know. Yeah.
2: Oh, I see. Right. Would you argue that we haven't yet proven whether or not this is a bubble, if you like,
0: and it's unsustainable? Not only because the joke I make, it could be the kiss of death, right? I think all the intentions are perfect mm. from the artist and from the auction house, of course. What I do like, though, Sheila, when she bought her, her CryptoPunk or CryptoKitten, they left it to a marketplace to develop. It went really fast, but it was not the promotion of one single artist by a huge power. Don't, don't yeah. forget, everything happened before in the art market, right? If you look at the Saatchi brothers, these big marketing guys, very affluent, they put an artist like Sandro Kia on the map like that. The Sandro Kia was from one day to the other because the Saatchi brothers promoted it, extremely valuable. And at a certain moment, Sandro Kia, if I recall correctly, but something happened like Sandro Kia not necessarily giving them the first right to buy an artwork. And what did they do? They, they dropped Sandro Kia, and the prices of Sandro Kia dropped tremendously if you were the owner of a Sandro Kia, you could sell it. It took 10 years for Sandro Kia to re-establish his career. So I'm not saying that's happening now, but but you have to be careful. And whether it's crypto art, digital art, traditional art, I love when artists start to explore new mediums. It's a new medium, right? It's the digital medium, but but artists have been exploring new mediums all over the history of, of art, right? All of a sudden they start to use New materials, all of a sudden plastic is being used, which had never been before. So it's a new medium, but it is art. And I I take it seriously as an art firm. I know quite a few of my art colleagues don't. They think it's all uh, bogus. It's not bogus. It's going to be big. And I'm actually very happy that Christie's is endorsing this. Um, Mm. Of course, it's more like a joke uh, that it would be the kiss of death. It's it's great that they're doing it.
2: Yeah, it could be. That's the point. But I mean, I think it's interesting that you gave the example of the Saatchi brothers, because there's some sort of warning there as well for the whole world of cryptocurrencies in a way, because we worry about like, you know, all these institutions are getting into crypto and are they going to essentially co-opt it, right? And then if you move away from a world where the value is being created by this collective, you know, organic marketplace, and all of a sudden we work, these big, big players step in and they're like, nope, we're going to co-opt this. They can go either way, right? reflect on for all aspects of where this industry is going. One thing I want to just pick up on that as well, I think is really interesting and you and Sheila were talking before about the role of galleries and collectors and so forth. And I've always been struck by how the very notion of ownership when it comes to fine art is something quite different from what it is when we think about you know, something that you have in your home and you keep to yourself. I mean, so many big name collectors, of course, own the art and then present it in, in a museum. And so there's a sort of a public benefactor role that they play. There is the pride and all of the great bragging rights that come from being the owner, and that's obviously very valuable, but it's sitting there at the Met or the Louvre or whatever for everybody to see. I think it's fascinating that we can translate that idea in the internet now to NFTs, that you are the certified owner of this piece of art, whether it's a physical piece or a digital piece for that matter but you now treat the internet as a global gallery. You get all of the power of that, the benefits and so forth, but you're playing this very important benefactor role of both providing the art to the public and supporting the artist. Do you think that there is a shifting mindset around some of this? Or, you know, and, and I suppose also, what does it mean for museums as well, is another question in that.
0: Yeah, a shifting mindset, I do believe so. The only problem is that the art market itself is a very conservative market. Mm -hmm. There's never been a revolutionary market. For example, the way they endorse technology has been extremely slow if you compare to any other market. And let's not forget, it's not a growing market. It very much caters to the people who already own art. I think every other business looks at people who don't own their products yet, right? Whereas In the art market, they very much cater to themselves, among themselves. And I think that's also one of the reasons why it's the lack of credibility for people who are not insiders of the information and the fact that the market itself is an inward-looking market and not an outward-looking market. So I see a huge opportunity for everything we've just discussed to open up that market. And that's why I believe that the players within the market who are opening up to this new technology. I mean, Christie's, for example, helped my company tremendously when they endorsed Artery and we were actually creating the whole blockchain security among one of the largest uh, auctions they've ever done of the Appsworth collection of American art. So I think that's a big statement from a traditional market player to make. Will it change the art market? I actually believe COVID helped there. I I'm Mm. one of those people who doesn't want to see any benefit of what happened over the last year because it's been devastating. But I do believe that people start to realize that just the physical object uh, can also be replaced by something else. It's Then again, there is this whole analogy of, look at me sitting in front of books. Mm. In a way, books are my biggest enemies. I'm one of those persons who love to buy books. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. I don't know what to do with them anymore. And my kids don't own books. It's all on a tablet and not even on a tablet anymore. It's just on their phone. So you see this big shift happening. If you look at, I love real estate. So I look at offerings and every apartment building is 90% window. So where's the art? Where's mm-hmm. the art going to hang? Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was a, an art dealer and you would come to someone's house and you would only see windows. You would think, oh my God, this is a nightmare. What can I ever sell to these folks? But it already takes into account that people are not necessarily worried about where to hang their art, because it's not necessarily the kind of art they will buy. So yes, things will change. The market is slow, though. They're now touting their horn about digital revolution that happened during COVID. Well, I mean, yeah, okay, they sell more art online in a very traditional way, still with guys on the telephone. They call it online bidding. I don't, I wouldn't call that online bidding. That's someone on the phone, right? That's, that's, that's how we always did it. The only thing is it's now recorded. You can see it live on your computer. I think there are changes happening.
3: You know, I'd love to pick up on that a bit because I, I take your point. I live in an old Victorians. So we have plenty of wall space and we have, you know, art all over the place. And we also, I'm a huge book collector as well. I have, this is an ongoing discussion in my house. Should we really have one entire room dedicated to a library is an interesting question, right? So, and and a little bit one, but I want to switch a little bit to thinking about creators because certainly in the author market, you know, we have seen some benefits to the digital market for authors. There are some consequences, of course. And I'd love to know how you're thinking about the artists themselves. I mean, the art history is replete with examples of artists who only became Famous and well known after their deaths, their deaths often resulting in their inability to draw a living wage or any kind of income off of their work and then resulting in you know, illness and death that were directly correlated to their standard of living based on their, their income levels. It's full of these tragic stories. And so part of what I think I find very interesting about NFTs is the opportunity for creators, call them more a term used more these days, like creators of whatever kind of con- artistic content it is, to monetize that content, to create almost a stream of income off of it going forward. So rather than traditional kind of licensing and merch deals, the kind I talked about earlier, you you can track essentially where your artwork is used on the internet and other places and create essentially this income stream that is current. And I'm curious how you're thinking about that and the implications for creators and all of this.
0: No, I think the NFT is, of course, a great example, doesn't even need explanation, right? I mean, if you create an NFT of an original artwork, the artist should get paid. But if you look at the artwork itself that's created by an artist, there's no technical reason anymore not to create a digital record of that artwork. Mm -hmm. With the cryptographic signature of the artwork, you can even add a unique identifier that you know that the information that's stored in the blockchain matches the actual artwork. And then you can, of course, the resale right, you know, the moment the artwork is sold in the secondary market, there's already a legal system in place that the artist should get part of that revenue. Often it's missed because the artists don't know, but there is technically spoken no reason. It's just a choice that you have to make as a marketplace. We're going to protect the artist. We have the whole system running and and hopefully it will be adopted at a certain moment. Those things are more a matter of choice, but it will happen. I mean, if you listen to music, I even have my old finals, but our kids are listening nonstop to music and uh, I see the bills that I have to pay for the streaming, etc. So royalties are being paid and are being distributed. And yeah. in the art market, it will happen as well at a certain moment. And actually the NFT could teach the market how to deal with that in a way.
3: This is something I'm hopeful about. My husband at one time was head of YouTube Music. And one of the big discussions that they had when they were thinking about launching the products there, this was, you know, a decade ago, was how you compensate songwriters. How do you do that? How do you ensure that when a song is played, you know, on YouTube or it's used in background or whatever it might be, that there is a fair allocation of the stream of income across the variety of individuals, you know, that had a hand in its creation and how you kind of do that fairly and how you do that effectively is something I think NFTs are going to give us an opportunity to kind of stamp, right? To say, if there is a collective that creates something, here's the relative weight of each of these individual creators, right? This is a little less relevant maybe to an artist than it is to kind of musicians and things like this. But nevertheless, there is this opportunity for us to create models, like innovative and new models that build on some of the work, I think primarily in the music space, but bring that into the art world in a way that we haven't really been able to do or see before.
0: But you need the industry that is in charge of that music industry to understand it and to understand they can make more money. The art industry could make much more money if they would actually ensure that contemporary art is all secured now, moving forward. Because then in 10 years, you don't have attribution problems anymore. Look at all those catalogue resumes that are being created, right? A catalogue resume is the ultimate publication with the whole oeuvre of an artist, Uh, When the artist is dead, it's, of course, very complicated. You then all of a sudden get 12 scholars who are going to study the whole oeuvre of that artist and decide which artwork will be included in the catalogue raisonné. Well, mistakes have been made. Huge lawsuits took place. So there's not a single person anymore who wants to say this artwork is by Monet, because if you're wrong, you're being sued. So people are very reluctant to make these kinds of statements and those catalog resonates for that reason are becoming less important. But you won't need them if you endorse the technology. If I were a contemporary artist, I would make sure everything I create is living on the blockchain and is cryptographically signed off by me with my own statements. And that will grow the market because that gives to reassurance in the future that the artworks are correct.
2: You know, when I think about like a lot of the different use cases that people's brains suddenly unleash when they think about NFTs. I was just thinking of one then that has been suggested to me as you were talking about the secondary sale idea, right? That we can embed into this provenance, you know, a smart contract perhaps that always distributes some portion to the seller, the artist rather. You can take that to another level, which I find is fascinating, whereby that smart contract can be designated to dedicate funds from the secondary market sale to anything. It plays into charity and the funding of public goods and public infrastructure in a very interesting way. And in fact, one of the most, I think, groundbreaking, at least efforts, it wasn't necessarily a huge success in terms of how it functioned, but just by getting the idea out there, there was a group of folks that I, I was connected to, like Bill Tai and Arnold Waldstein, who founded one of the first crypto kitties called the Honu. And it mm-hmm. was an attempt to raise money for ocean conservation. And so it was a...
0: Remember, it, yeah.
2: Yes, right. It was a turtle and a cat. Uh, and they, they bred this thing and they sold it in the open market. Now, it turned out they didn't quite get the, what they wanted, which was to have this living, breathing auction that would then grow and funds would constantly be fed into ocean conservation. And they ended up just selling it to one person. But it was probably ahead of its time. And the idea was at least birthed at that point. But I just think given that there is a long history of connection between philanthropy, art, and this sort of public service that comes from you know, the wealthy people who work in this space, there could be some really interesting things that happen around that process, that the market itself, the future market, the secondary market, becomes a mechanism for ongoing fundraising, if you like, for, for these sorts of things. Any thoughts on that? And you know, just generally where you see the application of these ideas?
0: Of course, I support it. With Artery, we also supported, to my opinion, a very good case. We all know what happened under the former, I don't even want to mention his name, but under our former president, what happened at the Mexican border, that kids were separated from their parents. And a hundred quite famous American artists created an artwork dedicated to a specific moment where a specific child was separated from the parent. So now we had the artwork which we registered, of course, using blockchain technology, et cetera, and and the timestamp. We had the event, which was now immutably linked to the artwork, which was the statement of either an official or the child itself. And you had the whole historical context, which was also added to it. I think that's all great. We should do it. And of course, there are so many charitable things you can do with all this technology, but ultimately you want the market to understand the commercial benefits of it. Then it goes fast. You know, the moment you're in the realm of charity, etc., it's like, Oh, this is such a nice idea in, in a way you're dead in the water already when people think this is only nice for a charitable reason. As long as the market believes that opaqueness will help their business model, which it yeah. doesn't anymore. It's a very old fashioned idea because as, The moment ArtNet came up, the moment Google existed, it's all about this crazy idea that you as a human being are so important in the sales process of an artwork. I mean, you're not. I never thought that I was like hugely important. Yes, your connections are important, but that's it. I know a very pompous salesperson at a big auction house who can be very pompous because he can mention the name of a 15th century Sienese painter, a painter from Siena in Italy, that nobody knows, but everybody knows everything. I go online and I know most likely almost everything that person knows. So I think the market players have to realize that they're not that important in the sales process, which they're learning now because of COVID. I mean, when I worked at Sotheby's, everyone was always in the plane because I have to be at this party in Fort Worth because my client is there. I happen to know the client, and the client would tell me, "Nana, if that person is sitting next to me again at a dinner party, I will hit her with my bag." People are getting <laughs> sick and tired of all those people imposing themselves on them, but they have to show relevance within their institutional environment. So I'm very optimistic about. Yeah, that.
2: But, but dealing with the insufferable, <laughs> all-knowing, you know, pompous people. I'm glad you went there because I <laughs> I'm first going to respond to your idea that yes, you still need to have this commercial value. And I think that is absolutely true. Like it almost defeats its purpose if there is no game in a way, right? That there is not something that you think you can win and play. There's interplay already in the traditional art world that does that. There's the collector that is gaming and wanting to be the guy that, that owns the Monet, but displays it. So I think where the answer lies is in designing basically token economics, you know, crypto economics that does in fact try to find that trade-off between the pursuit of private interest and then the transfer of that into a public thing. And I think there are interesting economic designs. We had Glenn Whale on our show who thinks in these sorts of ways. How do we actually design systems that would essentially serve both of those masters, right? But then you talked about the the pompous uh, guys and the Mm. egos that get caught up in all of this. And you realize that, yes, there's that human aspect, which isn't necessarily something we like, it is a fundamental aspect of how that private commercial game is played that, that mm-hmm. market essentially. So I don't quite know where my question's going here, but I, I'm interested to see like, because you talked about how yeah, everybody's now an expert. So all of a sudden you've deflated the value of the guy who knows the Sienese artist because as you said, anybody can find it out on Google. What happens to the market then? If there is no longer any privileged power for those key participants? Where does the value and the determination of value and the game actually come from?
0: I think it's a great development. First of all, people will become less pompous, which always helps in human relationships. Secondly, the level of knowledge is already at a level that you now can do the extra work to even find out more information, which in a market, can you believe it? In the old master market, There is no standardized condition report. So if Mr. X creates a condition report about Raphael, he can say the work is in splendid condition. What the hell is splendid? (laughs) (laughs) Then you can have Mr. X in Paris who can say about the same work, the artwork is in stable condition. What the heck is a stable condition? I would be worried to even hang it on my wall. So as long as there is no standardized condition report, you would basically recommend everyone to stay away from these works. So what do people do? They hire their own experts. And if you're clever and you make sure that you have an impartial person, look at the condition. I think the good news is there is so much still that you can explore than the superficial opinion of non Decking about Monet. You can go much deeper than that, I would say. And I think that's good news. It's good news for the art buyers. And standardization of information is in any other business standard, standard practice. It will ultimately happen in the art market as well, for sure.
3: It's really interesting to hear. I mean, Nana, I've just loved this entire conversation. But hearing you talk about, you know, kind of old masters versus the way contemporary art is being approached versus I would see even say modern, which had kind of a transition, almost movement to ultra contemporary art. You know, I think the hope here is that some of the markets that haven't been able to flourish around new, you know, artists that are upcoming will now have more opportunity to take root. And there will be a, this new generation of collectors who have more access, you know, through online methods to some of these emerging innovative artists that really speak to the cultural moment or speak to them as a, even as a generation. And I think you'll see that there is this, I think we're already seeing some of this in new models around how galleries think about their online presence to your points. That's my hope, you know, is that we're going to expand the notion of what is art? What is an artist? What is valuable? How do you create a market around something that is new, that doesn't really have a proof point, which most contemporary art is kind of in that category, I would argue. How do you do all of those things? And to me, this fundamentally comes down to the NFT as one model of empowerment, artistic empowerment, encouraging the taking of risks encouraging the creation of making that kind of an investment where you could even own a portion of something that you really just love. And if that winds up reaping rewards and creating some ROI downstream, great. But chances are, you're going to buy it the same way I bought my very first piece of art, which to answer your question was a, a Nova because I was obsessed with Malevich and there was no world in which I could even own a corner of a Malevich at that time in my life. But you know there are ways that maybe I could have had a fractional ownership of what I really wanted, which was a Malevich, and uh, just had some satisfaction and understanding that I was a, a little tiny piece of appreciation for that particular work and what it represented to me.
0: But know? that's the markets that we're, we're talking NFTs, but I think the fractionalized ownership or actually the tokenization of artworks and to trade tokens so you can actually own an investment in an artwork is gonna set a new standard. I don't think it's been done right yet, but you have to look at the financial industry. You have to look at, for example, art lenders and not the art lenders that will have already all the other assets of, of someone, a high net worth person in their portfolio. Because then if you collateralize an artwork and the artwork defaults, so to say, it turns out not to be by the artist and all of a sudden the value is zero, Well, if you have a huge portfolio with a big bank, they will just take your real estate, right? But if you go to a very focused art lender, where only the artwork is the engagement you have with that person, default is not an option. And I think that's where you have to look at. You have to look at the people who cannot afford to make a mistake. They have due diligence processes that are so strict. And you can even help them with adding more strict due diligence methods like what we just discussed, the ultimate condition report, et cetera, then I would invest in an artwork. If I knew for sure that if the person who gives me the opportunity to invest basically goes bankrupt, if anything is wrong with that artwork, that's my artwork. And then you can fractionalize. You can create financial products on the asset class, which I don't see happening yet because the art offerings are just not good enough yet. Unfortunately, there are some exceptions, of course. Mm -hmm. Follow the risk, right? Who's taking a risk? That's what I always find fascinating. And then I happen to have a tech company that can just make sure that all those risks are visible to those who you would allow. So every investor can look at what was the risk assessment made when this artwork was tokenized. Because the beauty about digital art is people will actually at the moment go to other art as well. The interesting thing is you see a lot of old master collectors who think digital art is crazy. The other way around, I can actually see people. I was involved in the Kadhaf Art Fair for digital art. At that time, I was still chairman of TEFAF, the very traditional big art fair, the biggest art fair in the world. And we had a fair in the armory in in New York. A lot of people from Kadhaf, downtown, digital art fair, came with me to see the TEFAF Art Fair. The other way around, nobody came. So people will start to collect different kinds of art as well, but they will come up with a new kind of security. They will just ask from the dealer. I would love to see those conversations. Someone who owns an NFT knows exactly what they own and they will go to the dealer in the booth. Everything yeah. is beautiful. Everything shines. There's a glass of champagne. Just ask nasty questions.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing that we haven't really touched on that I find really interesting is in music, you talk a lot about, like, there's a sample, right? So you take a small riff or you take something and then someone else builds on that. And there's one of the most contested things that gets a lot of press attention is like, oh, was that really copying or borrowing from another piece of music or was it not? And how do you, you know, assess that? And I think it's really fascinating to think about digital art being pixelated or pieces of it taken, right? You think about iconic Shepard Fairy, you think about Wiley's portion of Obama, right? Like anyone, I think, who knows art at all would recognize the pattern from behind President Obama from Wiley's portrait, right? Or recognize Shepard Ferry's particular style of portraiture whatever it is. And there's a way, I think, with the digital representation, you could think about this sampling that happens now. People borrow all the time. You could actually think about a model that's a little bit more like music, where you could kind of honor, you know, the generation of artists or a particular artist and pay homage in a way where there could actually be a stream of. Income or recognition or whatever that flows through the generations of art, not unlike I'm really going to leap here, the crypto kitties, right, where you're breeding the crypto kitties together, getting a new generation of a crypto kitty, but that does honor the parent kitties as they call them that came before. And these possibilities, I think, are and the remixing that they'll almost allow. I could see a whole industry of DJ type professionals that are remixing art, digital art, right, and creating these mashups or mixups that are hugely exciting visually, and really
0: emotionally resonant with people. And complete transparency in the sourcing. I love that.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So many things right, that we've yet to even tap the surface of that are going to be really, really exciting, I think, going
2: forward. But the cool thing is we're going to be talking about this in a couple more episodes, because this is a whole series. And uh, Nana, you are the perfect guest for us to head on to lay all this up, because my mind is spinning. You know, I, It so happens I, I founded a company called Streambed that's trying to actually deal with, before I joined coinus is doing some of the stuff that Sheila was talking about because it's this idea that creators work. You can treat copyright quite differently. It's not something that you litigate over, but rather that you actually encourage the use of so long as the recognition is there of yeah. what was previously came yeah. from. So the notion of derivative works and uh, my friend uh, Lance Kuntz, who's our lawyer, talks a lot about that as well. So Uh, Lots of interesting parallels of conversations here. What I also see is the the idea that once we have a framework for both establishing and tracing and recording verifiable information, that it really does potentially change the dynamics of the marketplace. And the information is always the most important element of a marketplace. And the control of that information is politics, is power, is everything, right? What we're dealing with in this conversation is those tensions. And when we open everything up, what happens to who controls it and where does price and value come from in this environment? So lots for us to keep talking about. Nana, thank you so much for being such a a generous and wise, uh, insightful guest.
0: It's my favorite subject. So I gave up my career as an art dealer to start this company, which is definitely riskier than being the vice chairman of Sotheby's. But (laughs) I've learned so much and I had so much fun with conceptualizing What can you change in the market? I don't want to change the art market. I just want to make sure that people who buy art or people who think about new financial products you can create with this asset class can actually have a resource of credible information that will only help the asset class. The change will not come from the marketplace itself, we can safely say already, because they have been very slow. But what you're discussing here is fascinating, and it may actually change the marketplace ultimately.
3: It will
2: we'll see where it goes
3: I guess time will tell yeah
2: that's what we're here to see we'll see where it all goes Nana Decking from R3 thank you so much for your time Sheila Warren as always my fabulous co-host a great chance for you to to dig up all your your art lawyer work and your yeah we kind of got art minor that you did your art history work all of that bringing together in this fascinating episode so it was a great pleasure stay tuned everybody next week as I said second episode on this NFT theme we'll let you know what that's all about when it comes thanks for joining us Till next time. Bye-bye.
1: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, and Nana Decking. Our theme song is Shepherd. and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. You have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast.coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at CoinDesk and the Money Reimagine team, thanks for listening.